We invite you to open your Bibles uh, to Mark chapter 12. We're in our study of Jesus in depth and in Mark chapter 12 today, and we find Jesus in the last week of his life and ministry yet again, right before the cross. And these weeks that we've been looking at him, he's been bringing uh, the prophetic goods uh, to the people of Jerusalem, and in the process has kind of uh, uh, gone after all kinds of taboo issues that uh, would uh, be pretty controversial then and even now. And today in politics, as uh, many say that there are some issues that politicians and leaders uh, would do well to never touch, like, uh, like not touching the third rail of an electric train. Well, Jesus comes to one subject that was a major third rail in politics with everyone then, and dare I say, even now. And so that's the issue of taxes. This is going to be interesting. So would you please stand for the reading of God's Word. Starting in verse 13 of Mark 12. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is, is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar all the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The old uh, saying is that loose lips sink ships. You ever heard that before? The idea being that certain things said in public may actually take someone down, or in the case of war, uh, may let secrets loose and take a whole army down. Well, in a version of that, President can presidential candidate Howard Dean learned the hard way about loose lips sinking ships in the 2004 presidential primaries of the United States. Dean, no relation to me, was a rising star in the Democratic Party. Early in the primaries, he was attracting people with his rallies and had growing momentum in the process. And the Vermont governor was known for his fiery personality and giving impassioned speeches that got people really fired up. So after he lost uh, the Iowa caucus to John Kerry in the winter of 2004, a crowd of 3,000 followers packed in to hear about Dean's next step. And the room was loud, it was full of energy. So Dean got up at the podium, took off his sports jacket, rolled up his sleeves, and tried to reassure his supporters that they were going to keep going. And then one after one, he named the states, the next states, the next primaries that they would go to and win. And the crowd loved it and swooned over what he said. And then it happened. Governor Howard Dean let out a scream, or rather a screech, like, yeah! 
that seemed out of place. It was dubbed the Dean Scream. Don't use that with me, guys. And to many, it seemed very unpresidential. Worse, it was caught on video. And over the following weeks, it was shown countless times uh, to, that most people cringed at in terms of the optics. His campaign numbers took a dive, and after that, and every mention of Howard Dean was normally associated with that screen. To this day, Howard Dean actually laughs about the moment, but for Howard Dean, loose lips sank his presidential ship. Today, Mark 12, we find a tricky moment in Jesus' life and ministry where loose lips could have sank his ship, all when religious leaders approach him about the third rail of Judean politics of the time, taxes. And in our polarized political age, in our gotcha age, Jesus has something to say about uh, the ever-controversial subject of taxes, and in the process, he's going to tell us something uh, about what Christianity believes about human government. And so we're going to ask, we're going to deal with this question, how does Jesus look at paying taxes? And more importantly, how does Jesus understand human government with respect to God's authority? <clears throat> so let's quickly review where we are in the account right now. Uh, Jesus in that last week before the cross, he's in Jerusalem during one of the biggest Jewish festivals of the year, the Passover where we know there would usually be millions of people in and around uh, Jerusalem. When he shows up, uh, there were a series of, of uncomfortable confrontations that we've seen over the prior weeks of our series, those confrontations being between Jesus and the Jewish authorities, and today is just no different. Look at verse 13 with me in uh, Mark 12. It says this, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, our text begins talking about the they sending these official-sounding people to meet with Jesus in the temple courts. Now, the they that Mark is talking about is likely the Sanhedrin, or the Jewish ruling authority that was effectively a combination of, in that time of the church, the U.S. Congress, and the U.S. Supreme Court all rolled into one. Back in verse 11, uh, 27, we meet the Sanhedrin as elders, Pharisees, and chief priests. Uh, and, and this time, they're sending two parties to represent that Sanhedrin. In this verse, the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now, why were these sent? Well, there's at least two reasons. First, Jesus has shown up in Jerusalem acting like an authoritative king, an authoritative prophet. He just exudes authority like he's in charge. He came in the city with, a, with people singing praises of Hosanna and calling him the king of Israel, and he didn't quiet them. 
Furthermore, he goes in the temple the next day and literally cleans house when he turns over tables and chases out those who are turning a worship space into a mall. And then he comes back the next day and criticizes the leaders of Jerusalem who challenges authority by telling a parable about them, a parable of judgment that will be coming upon them. The Sanhedrin knew that he was talking about them, and even says it in the final verse, in verse 12, and they wanted to arrest him. They wanted to stop him in the process. They were provoked by all of Jesus' actions and authority, and they wanted to reassert their authority and flex their power muscles. Now, there's a second reason I want to address uh, that the Pharisees and Herodians were sent this day, and that's this. They were coming as a team of, uh, to entrap Jesus as a team of, li- of litigators, uh, lawyers who are going to challenge Jesus in the court of public opinion. The Pharisees and Herodians had already been plotting to get rid of Jesus all the way back in chapter 3, and now they're going to officially try and take Jesus down. This is their shot they're going to take. It's like that line, though, at this moment, in that great movie, I'm a man, I've got to bring up Gladiator, right? It's one of those things, where Maximus is told by a fellow gladiator and friend this. He said, they, the enemy, will have to kill your name before they kill you. And that's exactly what they wanted to do with Jesus, is kill his name and authority by taking him out. And what they were looking for was one word. One word they could post on the internet as a soundbite. One word they could run in sensationalist news. They wanted a Dean scream moment, just like Howard Dean. So how do they do this? What do they do next? Well, they come to Jesus with flattery. They tell him, Jesus, you're a truth teller. You don't care about people's opinions. You don't care about appearances, and you always bring the truth. And they're pouring on this flattery by saying, Jesus, you're a man of integrity. You believe in absolute truth. Now tell us the absolute truth. Now, we should take note of this, this kind of posture they're taking with flattery. Proverbs 29 gives us a good warning about the dangers of flattery coming from the lips of men. It says this, a person who flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for him to step into. To an evil person, sin is a bait in a trap, but a righteous person runs away from it and is glad. Man, that's good stuff when people pour on the words of praise but have an agenda. And indeed, that's what's going on in this text. After the flattery, the religious litigators then bring Jesus after they're saying, Jesus, you're a man of integrity, you're all about absolute truth. They say these two big questions, and in either-or form, they say, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay taxes or not? Now, there's a couple of things we need to say about their questions here for Jesus. And the first is this. This question about paying taxes was a major third rail in the political world of that time. It's kind of like politically volatile issues in our time, like this. Should 
uh, health care be led by government or not? Should Social Security benefits be messed with? Or more recently, whether we should wear masks or not for COVID? Some of you here, as I bring that up, you can feel your blood pressure rising. Well, guess what? That's exactly what happens when they would bring up taxes in the first century. And here's why. Remember the Christmas story back in Luke 2? When a governor of Judea named Quirinius had families go to their hometowns for a census. Remember that? Jesus' birth narrative? Remember Mary and Joseph going back to Bethlehem? Here's why the Romans did a census. Taxes. Taxes. And in 6 AD, they installed a Roman poll tax on the Jews. That tax created a furor around Judea and among the people. And a group called the Zealots, led by a guy named Judas the Zealots, the Zealot, rose up in resistance. Now, Judas's revolt against the Romans was crushed by them. But Judas and the Zealots claimed this. They claimed that a tax was a violation of the sovereignty of God. And Judas even went so far as to call Jews that didn't rise up against this tax cowards. Cowards for not resisting the Romans. So this is the environment they're in. It's politically charged. It's big-time polarized. So Jesus confronted with his third rail political question in the middle of the temple courts with a litigation team waiting for his answer. Everyone's watching. Everyone's listening. Jesus is in the, on the horns of a dilemma. If he says yes to the questions, he risks alienating the patriot Jews among them, and even comes across as a Roman sympathizer. But if he says no, then the Romans will take notice and consider him a rebel stirring trouble, just like Judas the zealot. Loose lips could sink Jesus' ship here. So what does Jesus do next? Look at verse 15 with me. This is amazing. (laughs) In verse 15, it says, But knowing their hypocrisy, he, that is Jesus, said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius, and let me look at it. And they brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. What is Jesus doing? Well, man, he is so good. He is so wise, he knows exactly what's going on in this situation. He could see the political maneuvering that was going on. And the all-wise Christ and King saw these guys coming a mile away. He saw their hypocrisy, their duplicity, and their questioning. So he challenges their disingenuousness with a, why are you putting me to the test? Meaning he really dislikes their scrupulosity as an attempt to trap him and get that soundbite. And then he does what you got to know is a really shocking thing. He says, bring me a denarius. Now, what was so shocking about that? 
Well, that was a Roman coin that would be kind of like a $100 bill today. And you got to wonder, what's the big deal about that? Well, here's what's interesting. You know what was on that coin? On one side of the coin, it said Tiberius, the son of the divine Augustus. And on the other side, it said high priest with a picture of Tiberius, who was the emperor at that time. Now, if you're a Jew and you had to carry around a coin with a religious statement like the Caesar Tiberius and his father and all the Caesars are gods and high priests, you would be offended. There is, after all, only one true God, according to the biblical account. In other words, that coin was a form of idolatry. So now you got to figure, Jesus already sitting in this tense moment where he's faced with this question, and now he's holding a form of idolatry that the Jews have contempt for inherently. What in the world is he going to say? Well, Jesus says, whose likeness is on the coin? They say Caesar's. And he sums it all up when he says, render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, render to God what belongs to God. And they marveled at his answer. What in the world did Jesus just do? What did he do? Well, first, the all-wise Jesus diffused the political third rail of an either-or question by giving a both-and answer. He basically says, this is a false conflict being presented. Now, let me stop here and say, what's that got to do with us? Well, sometimes in life, there are both and things, even according to God. To be sure, in Christ, there are definitely some either-or things. Like when Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. That's an either-or statement, no matter what. But an understanding of God's Word will reveal that some things are both and. For example, corners of the early church and the history of the church struggled with whether Jesus was God or whether He was a man. But a clear reading of Scripture shows that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. Now, Today in our culture, we are presented with all kinds of either-ors when from God's point of view, they might be neither nors or both ands. I wish we had the time to get into some of those, but I'm limiting my time today, and we're going to keep moving through, but let's not miss the larger point. Jesus is telling the gospel truth without a party line. He does so with two answers to the third rail question. First, he says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. You know what Jesus is doing right here? Just in that time alone, he's denying zealot ideology that said there is only one object of loyalty and allegiance. That's God. The truth is, even according to Jesus, there are multiple allegiances and multiple loyalties that we carry around in life. Now, the big issue for us as followers of Jesus is how you prioritize them. What's first, what's second, what's third? We'll get to what's first in just a second for sure. 
Jesus is saying here that human government is lawful and has rights under God's plan. We have an obligation to obey those who rule over us in civil authority. In other words, human government is instituted by God, just as Romans 13 says. One important side note here that I hadn't, I'd never really seen before until I was doing some reading and studying, I was like, man, that's a really good point, is that Jesus is implicitly saying that believers can have loyalty to their unbelieving governments. Remember, he's in a theocracy at the time, even though Rome is over, overlaying that. In other words, we don't have to live in a theocracy to exist as Christians. We can live in even pagan-led governments, just like Kyle prayed earlier, uh, Daniel did. In fact, 1 Peter 2 says a crazy thing about obeying even non-Christian governments. It says, honor the king or emperor, if you want to look at the translation. That's all he says, honor the king. He talks about honoring other people as well. But what you got to understand is Peter wrote that in the early 60s AD. Do you know who the emperor was at the time that he wrote that? A guy named Nero, who was oppressive with the church and a little on the crazy side. Peter's point was that even when you don't like policy and suffering may be involved, even with injustices done to us by the government, we normally obey the laws of the land. Now, at this point, I know some of us here, and you're probably asking the question where I went to real easily, which is, what about civil disobedience? Well, here's what we'd say about that in the Christian history. Civil disobedience is allowable for Christians in rare circumstances when the civil authority makes a crystal clear law that goes against a crystal clear law of God. Think about, for example, Peter and John in Acts 4, when they were commanded by civil authorities, the Jewish leaders of the time, that they should stop preaching the gospel. Peter said, sorry guys, uh, we cannot but speak of what we've seen in the resurrected Christ. They disobeyed, but even then, they did it with persuasion. Persuasion with the gospel. That's the way of the church historically in the face of oppression. We don't use physical swords, though there's a place for armies and soldiers, and we need even Christian armies and soldiers. No, we as the church use our words, the gospel, as a persuasive witness as good citizens. So, render under Caesar is his first answer. But Jesus isn't done. And he answers the third rail question of taxes with a second response. He says, render unto God the things that belong to God. So here's the thought. Not only do you and I have rights, not only, according to Jesus now, does the government have rights, but don't forget God has rights, ultimate rights as the king of kings. Why is Jesus saying this? In that time, and with that coin in his hand, while people are watching, he was challenging the idolatry of the divine Caesar cult. And he was challenging Roman assumptions about the Caesar 
being a god. They believe that Caesar not only owned all the coins, he was lord over everything in the Roman Empire. But Jesus is challenging these godlike assumptions of a power-hungry dictator. Let me put it this way. History has a long list of examples of the state trying to use God for its purposes, but as usual, our God cannot be controlled and managed by men, even governments. And Jesus is saying that there are limits to the authority and role of the state. God alone has ultimate divine rights. Now, how does this apply to us in every day? We've kind of dove in here deeply. What, what does this got to do with us today? Well, simple. And I say this knowing that most here are really trying to be conscious, conscientious rather about this. But pay your taxes within the law. Don't try to cheat the government of what they're due. As another application, Jesus is laying uh, out for us that he is transitioning the theocracy of the Jewish nation into a transnational kingdom. The, the, the theocracy that started with Moses was dying, and he was bringing in a fresh manifestation of the kingdom. Jesus is laying out that Christians, in other words, can not only support their government, but can be a part of it in an official sense. We need more Daniels. We need more Daniels in this age. More Christian politicians who will keep Christ as Lord of their lives and who care for the good of all the people in a nation and in a community. God wants us as Christians to engage and support our governments that he puts in place. But that then brings us to Jesus' second answer and how that applies to us. Jesus says, render unto God what belongs to God. What is God's? Well, Psalm 24 says it. The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. Everything, including you and me, belong to God. Everything does. He has final rights on all things, dare I say, on human governments. And no doubt. Men can be terrible stewards of human government, and they will give account. Nonetheless, God is Lord of all and the judge of all. Now, what's that got to do with us? The number one issue for all of us here, for an entire world, including me, is this, is we must learn to submit to God-given authorities in our lives. Honor thy father and thy mother is a commandment about, about uh, submitting to authority that God puts into place. And that is not easy for us. That is not easy. It all started back with Adam and Eve. Remember them in the Garden of Eden when God laid it out, his authority, even giving them a few simple laws to keep? And yet they rebelled and resisted God's authority back then. And in our text today, the Jewish leaders want to pit authorities against each other. You know why? So they can be the authority. 
But Jesus challenged them in their desire to be in charge by calling them to submit to the Lord above all. You know what's kind of redemptive in this? Jesus had a disciple whose name was Simon the Zealot. Jesus tamed his heart. He was a guy who hated paying taxes, just like all the other zealots. But Jesus tamed his heart to follow him and to submit to the authorities that the Lord had put in his life. So submit yourself to the clear God-given authorities that he puts in our lives. That's what righteousness looks like. So then, how then should we understand the biblical form or view of government? Well, Josh read it earlier. The Westminster Confession we read is super helpful to summarize the two truths in tension in this text. God is the supreme Lord over all, everything, and God has ordained government to both restrain evil and reward good. Both are true. Now, we don't have to get into the founding of our nation right now. I know some of you might be even asking about that. Wait, wait a minute. What about the United States and how we started with England? Is Rob here today with uh, King George? No, sorry. Yep. I don't have space for that. I'm punting on that. But I will tell you this. It was supposedly Ben Franklin who said the only certain things in life are death and taxes. But Jesus here is telling us in Mark 12, there is far more than death and taxes. There is God as Lord of all. The gospel key is to remember that God is not just another political maneuverer in the vast array of governments in history. He actually is a sovereign king who moves leaders and nations and rise, the nations rise up and fall under his hand. And this is gospel for us who follow Christ as Lord. Whatever happens next in American politics, and many of us are on, on the edge of our seat waiting, we can rest assured that God is the sovereign Lord with a plan. He knows what he's doing. Let me give you an example. Back in the history of Israel, it was the Lord who sent Assyria and then Babylon to judge his own people and exile them out of the land. These are pagan nations. He, decide, he disciplined his own people for their unfaithfulness with, of all things, the embarrassing fact of pagan nations being an instrument of judgment. He kicked them out of the, the land using them. But an interesting thing happens in Isaiah 14. In Isaiah 14, verse 24, it says this, The Lord of hosts has sworn, As I have planned, so shall it be. As I have purposed, so shall it stand. I will break the Assyrian in my land, and on my mountains trample him underfoot. And his yoke shall depart from them, his burden from their shoulder. And then he concludes, this is the purpose, that is purpose concerning the whole earth. This is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations, for the Lord of hosts has purposed. Who will annul it? His hand is stretched out. Who will turn it back? And there it is. When the Bible asks a question, you're supposed to answer. 
And the answer is nobody. Nobody can stop the Lord. Did you see this? God not only disciplines Israel in the exiles, he also brought down the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. God is this sovereign Lord who has this great plan he's working out in history. And here's the great news for us. We can't read what he's doing right now. Isn't that great? It's a mystery unless God reveals it. But here's our hope. It was God who put the Romans in Judea in the first century. It was the Lord who put Pontius Pilate in charge of Jerusalem and Judea at that time. Jesus himself said to Pilate, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. And Jesus submitted to that authority all the way to the cross knowing full well that God would redeem that terrible day for our salvation. Instead of taking something from us in taxes, Jesus, our King, gave all he could in his death at the cross. And in the process, he entrusted himself to his sovereign and loving Father. And that's exactly what we're to do. Trust ourselves to Christ who gave himself for us and leads us when, when think times are good in government, when times are bad, whatever the times are, whether the government says, oh, we love Christians, or whether the government says, oh, we don't want to have anything to do with Christians. We have the hope that we're a part of an eternal kingdom with eternal life waiting for us. With that in hand, we can render unto government instituted over us the due respect and pay our taxes. But we're also to render unto God even more all that we are and all that we have. Don't bank your life on what government might do tomorrow like the zealots. Bank your life on the Christ who is the sovereign king that guides you and me into that kingdom that's going to last forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you today around this very challenging subject. And we praise you, Jesus, that you are the Lord of all and that you call us to a bigger vision of your hand at work in history. You, who is Lord over the nations, you, who, is move, who are moving people in and out of leadership and service, even raising up nations and bringing them down. Lord, we want to be a part of a nation that lasts forever while loving our nation, while caring for the place that we live. Give us, Lord, a sense of your lordship and a sense of where we are to submit to you first and even to our government so that we not only may be good citizens, but may show what real citizenship looks like to the world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.